Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. I know some people are going to file in because we're talking about a very hot topic today, but I thought we would get started. I'm Laura Odato, the Director of Government Affairs for the Cato Institute. And today we're going to be talking about Common Core Standards. This has been a topic that Cato has worked on for a long time, Heritage and no Congressman Garrett. And recently in the media and the states, people have started to talk in a little more detail and, and see what we can do, what's actually happening. So this is obviously a really great time to vent, and we look forward to working with everybody moving forward. We're also happy to talk about some positive ideas for education reform. So in addition to the problems we see happening with Common Core, there's a lot of good things we can do um, for education reform that we'll get a chance to talk about briefly. So first up today is a friend of Cato, Congressman Scott Garrett. He was first elected to Congress in 2002, and he represents New Jersey's 5th District. He's the Vice Chairman of the House Budget Committee, the Chairman of the Budget and Spending Task Force for the Republican Study Committee, the Chairman of the Financial Services Subcommittee on Capital Markets and Government-Sponsored Enterprises, and the Founder and Chairman of the Congressional Constitution Caucus. Prior to his service in Congress, he served in the New Jersey General Assembly as the Senior Assemblyman for the 24th District, Assistant Majority Leader, and Chairman of the Banking and Insurance Committee. Related to today, he also served on the Education, Transportation, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committees, as well as the Joint Committee on Public Schools. Following that will be Neil McCluskey, who is the Associate Director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. Prior to Cato, Neil served in the U.S. Army, taught high school English, and was a freelance reporter covering municipal government education in New Jersey. Neil is the author of Feds in the Classroom, How Big Government Corrupts, Cripples, and Compromises American Education, and his writings have appeared in uh, publications too numerous to list. Last today will be Lindsay Burke, who researches and writes on federal and state education issues as the Will Skillman Fellow in Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Before joining Heritage, she taught high school French. At Heritage, she focuses on two critical areas of education policy, reducing the federal role in education and empowering families with school choice. She holds a bachelor's degree in politics from Holland's University in Roanoke, Virginia, and a master of teaching degree in foreign language education from the University of Virginia. And with that, I will turn the podium over to Congressman Garrett. Thank you for the underwhelming applause. <laughs> and thank you to the gentleman in the front row who started it all off for me. Um, and thank you for the introduction. Um, good to be here. It is, um, we were encouraged as soon as we um, walked here from our office to see the long line of people waiting to get in. So uh, that is, in fact, encouraging to uh, know of such interest in this topic. I was going to um, begin by just doing, like I like to do, a little survey or a little poll and ask how many people here in the room watch uh, MSNBC. But then again, I realized that uh, considering what their ratings are, that's probably why only one person uh, is watching uh, MSNBC. But you may know that um, MSNBC made quite a stir a few months ago when uh, Melissa Harris Perry appeared in a promotional ad, as they seem to do so much in that network, ostensibly to talk about the need for increased educational funding or spending. And when she did, she revealed maybe a little bit too much, not only about herself, but also about the progressive way of thinking. This is what she said, in case for the rest of you, since the rest of you don't watch, except for this one person who watches MSNBC. Um, she said, we have to break through our kind of idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids actually belong to the community. Once it's everyone's responsibility and not just the households, then we can start making better investment, end quote. So this quote of hers created quite 
a bit of controversy, and rightfully so. And after the uproar of her doing that ad, then she devoted a large part of her time on her program to try, I guess you would say, to justify herself and exactly what she meant by it. But if you watched, well, one person did. One, uh, if you watched her program, then you would real, realize that she again revealed too much. She said this, she said, this isn't about me wanting to take your kids. This is about whether we as a society expressing our collective will through our pu public institutions, including our government, have the right to impinge on individual freedoms in order to advance a common good. Sort of a little bit of a NSA thing going on here, I guess it was in the back of her mind. In addition to sounding uh, dangerously Orwellian at the time, and perhaps borderline totalitarian, this is probably one of the most succinct and accurate descriptions of the progressive view of government. It is the idea that a lot of them have that all you need is ever-increasing funding and central planning, and that's basically it. It's going to cure all your ills. And this also, unfortunately, happens to be the current approach of the federal government with regard to what you all hear about, education policy. It's the invasion of the federal government upon the reserve powers of the states to set their own educational standards, and this has been going on, as we all know, for decades. But these last two administrations, this one and the last administration, really have made great leap forwards in federalizing education standards, first, of course, back under Bush with No Child Left Behind, and now with Common Core. And Washington has achieved this centralization of our education system by using the debating tactic, tactic that never loses, access to federal dollars. And the states, for those of you who deal with the states, know that they've been all too willing to accept federal mandates in exchange for more federal money. And in the process, all across the country, whether it's uh, the parents or the teachers or the administrators or the local school boards or the local elected officials, the people closest to and most directly responsible for the students, basically, you might say, have been shut out of the core process. Also, so that their money can be taken from them in this process. And whatever is left over after the bureaucracy down here in D.C. takes its cuts is sent back to the states with, of course, a whole myriad of strings attached. Now, why is this? Surely only Washington bureaucrats, they would say, know the answers. Surely with their special insight and understanding of education, they have what us commoners do not have. They know what is our best interest. They know what is, should be implemented for our schools, for your kids, and for my kids. And that is it. That's the progressive theory of government, the kind of that was advocated by MSNBC, and it's the kind that's actively being practiced right here in Washington. So I'll let Neil and Lindsay uh, speak to the conditions that uh, brought us to uh, where we are today. I would just like to spend just about a minute or two to tell you um, what I think the solution is. And overall, the 30,000-foot level, the solution is that those closest to the students should have the authority to set educational standards. And that is why later today, I think it is, um, right, today? Yeah, okay. Or maybe tomorrow. Uh, we'll introduce the, uh, the LEARN Act. The LEARN Act is Local Education Authority Returns Now. Um, the LEARN Act would allow a state or multiple states to basically opt out of uh, ESEA or No Child Left Behind entirely. Um, now, theoretically, you might be thinking there, well, can't states do that today? Well, theoretically. 
but there's really no incentives for a state to do so. Why? Because states will still have to pay in, the taxpayers of the states will still have to pay into the federal education program, and if they opt out today under the current situation framework, they basically get nothing in return. So what would the LEARN Act do? The LEARN Act would take money out of the equation by basically reimbursing the citizens directly of that particular state with a, um, with a tax credit. And very briefly, at a 20,000-foot level, this is how the LEARN Act Act works, three-step process. First, the state would pass a law to opt out of No Child Left Behind, ESEA, right? So that's the first step. Second step is the Treasury Department here in D.C. would determine, through a formula, how much money an opt-out state would be entitled to. And finally, the, ta the, uh, the taxpayers of that state would, as I said before, I think, receive a tax credit. So at the end of the day, once it's up and rolling, you as a taxpayer in this state, if you were in that state that opted out of it, essentially would not be sending your money to Washington at all anymore because it's a tax credit and it would stay in your pocket. So I think the system is pretty simple, pretty state forward. Goes back to that overall arching theme or message that I have is that we empower the states, the teachers, the parents, uh, free them from federal mandates entirely, allow them to keep their own tax dollars in their own pockets and allow them to set their own um, direction for the kids, their kids in their area. So as we work forward now, and this will wrap it up, where we work forward, as you know, we're going through fairly quickly, I think, in the House with ESEA reauthorization. I believe that it's imperative that we abandon the current centralized philosophy that we see on ES, uh, MSNBC, not, a, not ESPN, but on MSNBC, uh, and replace it with, uh, and not simply replace it with um, another misguided one. I'll just digress here for a second. It is often the problem of, um, the, of our party that so many times we just think that the, the other side of the aisle have a, uh, a misguided federal policy on something and just allow us to have our bureaucrats and our system in place on the federal, gov and federal government. We'll do it um, on the cheap, cheaper than they can. Um, but that's still a flawed or failed approach because that's still a system where um, it again goes back to the idea that somehow or other the bureaucrats, whether they be Democrat bureaucrats or Republican bureaucrats, know better in Washington than the uh, parents back at home. Um, our basically, so that's wh where the flaw is in that. Our system will not improve until we therefore remove the Washington bureaucrats entirely out of this equation. And as you've heard me say here before, it's time to return our systems to the system that our founders envisioned. It's time to return our education policy back to local communities. It's time to start putting actually the students first and not anyone else. And I hope that, which we have a lot of staff here, that you will, when you leave here today, take a look at the LEARN Act. Remember, local education authority returns now. And when you, as soon as you do that, immediately run to your member's office and encourage him to sign on to this legislation. With that, as I said at the beginning, I will now turn over to Neil and Lindsay to tell us exactly how we got into this mess in the first place. Thank you so much. Uh, well, I want to thank everybody for coming. Um, I especially want to thank Congressman Garrett for uh, being here today and Lindsay and for Laura for putting all this together. Uh, I am going to actually trace how we got to almost to Melissa Harris Perry's America uh, here by giving you a quick uh, history of how we went from almost totally decentralized education to almost completely federalized education. Um, 
so I'm going to do that. I'm going to give you a little bit of information on what the Common Core is. So a lot of you have probably been hearing the word Common Core in the last couple of months, but may not really know what we're talking about. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about concerns you may have heard um, about something called data mining. You've all heard data mining in NSA and other contexts, but it happens and can happen more in education. I'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, and then Lindsay is going to take the Common Core after me, and he's, she's really going to rip apart the specifics. So I'm going to I'm going to be a little bit broad on this. Uh, tell us how we got to where we are, and then she's really going to rip the core apart. Um, so what is the Common Core? It is national curriculum standards. Now, there's a big debate. Is it a curriculum? Is it standards? At the very least, I think if we're going to be fair, what we can say is the goal of the Common Core is to set walls around your curriculum in your schools, in your public schools across America. It may not tell you specifically what books you have to use, but it sets limits on the decisions that local schools can make. And I think that's the fairest way we can put that. It's only specifically about math and English language arts. Those are the two parts they talk about. However, it does have its tendrils starting to go into social studies and science. In fact, you may have heard some disputes about, well, how much fiction versus nonfiction reading does Common Core require? Once you get to high school, they say 30% of what you read should be fiction, 70% should be nonfiction. And then people said, well, what, but don't, don't, don't think that your English classes aren't going to teach all great nonfiction. It's the non, I mean, not all great fiction. The nonfiction will be coming from your history classes and your science classes. So this is how they're working in social studies and, and science. Uh, and so it gets a little bit uh, vague as to what this is really about. But it, what it says is math and English language arts. Um, so how do we get here? The idea of having national curricular standards, national uniformity, actually goes back pretty far. You can trace it to really the early Republican era of this country. So there were some founders, you know, at the beginning of this country who were afraid, well, were these disparate states, were these disparate peoples? We should have schools teach common norms, common values, and common beliefs so that we can be unified. Now, the way they put this uh, was often kind of frightening. Benjamin Rush is a guy from Pennsylvania you might have heard of. Noah Webster, no doubt you've all heard of. And they talk about essentially having an education system where people are all made the same so they can be easily governed, of course, is a very frightening prospect. And the reality is, even though some people in that period were thinking that way, most people just assumed that education was something that was done in the home, or in private schools, or in church settings. It wasn't something that government controlled or that government provided, and they like that. That's why these schemes that, that some of the founding era uh, people had never went anywhere, certainly not in their lifetimes. It's because education historically was set in the family and in communities and in churches. Um, then you, we're going to fast forward ahead to 1830s. Many of you probably heard of Horace Mann. This is the next step in centralization. Horace Mann was the first secretary of the Board of Education in Massachusetts, and he's the guy who really pushed the idea that we have to have common government schools at the state level, but really with, I think, an aim ultimately to the national level. So again, we could teach everybody the same norms, same values, everybody would be similar. And he, he didn't just say, let's do this for a state. He looked at France, he looked at the Netherlands, and he looked at Prussia, 
Now, if you know anything about Prussia, that's really not who we wanted to emulate. Um, and he said, look, they have these great government systems of schools. They, you know, the, the society seems to work so efficiently. And this is what he liked. This is what this was patterned after. And interestingly, the Netherlands, not long after this period, they were in constant warfare over what their schools would teach. And eventually, they moved to a system that was almost completely about school choice. So he looked to them at their worst point, and unfortunately, we never decided to pick up at their best point. Next, we're, I'm going to try and hit these dates real fast, just so you can get the trajectory. 1867, we get our first US Department of Education, 1867. And now, you'll note that a lot of states had no power at this time to block this. It was done at the behest of something called the National Teachers Association which was the forerunner to the National Education Association. And two years later, this thing was downgraded to a bureau, and all it basically did was collect data. But this is the first time the federal government said, oh, let's have a Department of Education. Now you go almost a century ahead of that, or after that, to the National Defense Education Act. Anybody remember Sputnik, or have heard of Sputnik? This is probably the right room for it, because there's the Earth, or there Sputnik would have probably traveled around, maybe just that part in that picture over there. Uh, in any event, that caused sort of national hysteria, that we were falling behind the Soviet Union, and people said, well, we need to have this fixed. We should have the schools do it, and we should have more math teachers, and science teachers, and foreign language teachers. And so the, the federal government said, okay, we'll pass the National Defense Education Act to do these things. But Sputnik eventually fell to earth, hysteria subsided, and then we don't have another move forward until 1965 with the Elementary and Secondary Education Act. And this is the first time that the federal government says we should be involved in education regardless of national defense connections, which of course national defense is in the Constitution. It's a federal role. Now they're saying what we'll do is provide compensatory funding for low-income students. Again, not really controlling things, but this is that funding hook that is set into the mouths of states. The next big leap, 1979, the Department of Education is created, the modern Department of Education. This was done largely because President Carter was running for president in 1976. And for the first time, the National Education Association, now a full teachers union, says we will endorse a candidate. We will mobilize our membership to campaign for them. And Carter said, I'll create this Department of Education you want. And he ultimately did that after he won that election. 1983. Anyone ever heard of the report a nation at risk? Now we're in uh, the Reagan administration, and President Reagan had tried to eliminate the Department of Education. Most people in Congress didn't have a stomach to revisit that argument. So his Department of Education created this, or, or commissioned this report called A Nation at Risk that famously said if a foreign power were to have done to us what we've done to ourselves with our education system, we'd have considered it an act of war. This now makes the Washington kind of the bully pulpit in education, where people look to at least see the education system scolded. 1988, the ESEA is reauthorized for the first time, requiring states to define achievement levels for federally supported students, Title I students, um, and to identify schools where there isn't acceptable progress being made. This is the beginning now of what we ultimately see reach fruition and No Child Left Behind. 1989, uh, the first President Bush gets a summit together of governors called the Charlottesville Summit, where they talk about let's have national education goals. Uh, in 1990, the national education goals 
um, are created. They're very broad. You know, they're things like, well, let's lead the world in uh, literacy and things like that. But they are national, and that's the important part. Now we're beginning to say the federal government, working with states, should have a national um, uh, trajectory for our schools. 1991, you have something called America 2000, created by uh, Sen now Senator Alexander, then the Secretary of Education under first Bush. This included a proposal for national standards in five subjects, voluntary, but national standards created by the federal government in five subjects. Um, also voluntary exams and the idea of state, district, and school report cards that are at least pushed by the federal government. Now, this never passed. America 2000 wasn't enacted into law, but Secretary, then Secretary Alexander, used discretionary funds to begin to at least create these national standards. Now we go ahead to 1994, the Clinton administration. Now, now President Clinton liked America 2000. He creates Goals 2000, which ultimately is enacted by Congress, which includes a small grant incentive to get states to adopt the supposedly voluntary standards and assessments. So now you see that hook being connected. If you want money, granted at this time it's a pretty small amount of money, you must adopt these voluntary standards. Uh, at the same time, they were reauthorizing the Elementary and Secondary Education Act with the goal to force adoption by linking those standards to Title I funds, the annual funds, a big pot of money that states got every year. Um, now, that was ultimately gutted in 1994. You might remember a major swing in politics. Republicans take over. They eliminate something called NEZIC, and I don't even remember what that stands for, but that was this entity, this federal entity, that was going to approve state standards, whether or not they were nationally compatible. That was eliminated. And also in uh, 94, the history standards that Secretary Alexander Commission have produced came out, and everybody found something to hate. It was a complete debacle. Ultimately, the Senate condemned them by a vote of 99 to 1, and that really ended the overt push for federal national standards. Overt is the important term. 2001, you have nine, uh, No Child Left Behind, a bipartisan law, bipartisan support, requiring that states this is for the, really the first time, set standards and exams in math and reading and get all kids to proficiency by 2014. Um, there was some of that in the uh, Improving America School Act, the 1994 reauthorization. It was never really enforced. No child left behind. They said, we're going to enforce this. But it left it to states to define proficiency, write the test, things like that. And what happened? People in states having normal incentives said, well, are we going to do the hard work of getting people over a high bar or the easy work of Lowering the bar. Of course, the bar was either lowered or set really low. Um, 2008, No Child Left Behind is a failure. The National Government Association, the Council of T-State School Officers, and something called Achieve, Inc., publish a report called Benchmarking for Success, which calls for common national standards, and here's the really crucial part, for which adoption is, quote, unquote, incentivized by the federal government. And why is this important? 2008 predates the Obama administration. This is what sets out for the Common Core. And what you'll hear from people who defend the Common Core now, if you get so far as to have them acknowledge that the federal government has a role, has had a role in coercing states to adopt this, is they say they didn't want that. Well, we know that that's not true. You can go to the Benchmarking for Success report, and you can see very clearly it says the federal government's job is to do exactly what the Obama administration did, incentivize adoption of these standards. Um, 
June 2009, going from this benchmarking success, you have the creation of the Common Core State Standards Initiative. That's what this benchmarking for success was calling for. July 2009, the Department of Education announces the Race to the Top program, which is part of the stimulus, which gives points to states based on adopting common internationally benchmarked standards common to multiple states, and only one set of standards fit that description. It was the Common Core. Um, they also used federal money to select two consortia to create national tests. Clearly, this was major federal coercion, and this was before they were telling states to adopt these things before they were even published. Um, and so, not surprisingly, soon after they say this, 45 states end up adopting the Common Core. It's not because they loved them, it's not because they debated them, it's because they had to do it to get the money. Would some of them eventually have, have uh, adopted these? Maybe, we don't know. We do know they were all rushed into adoption without any time to discuss it, debate it, or dissect it. Uh, and then in September 2011, just as the icing on the cake, the Department of Education announces it'll give a waiver to states from No Child Left Behind. One of the things you have to do to get the waiver is have your state standards either certified as college and career ready either because you'd adopted the Common Core, which is what most states have done, or you could get your biggest four-year co public college system to say your standards were college and career ready. So Virginia stayed out, one of the few states stayed out of the Common Core. They got a waiver, well, in part by saying we're really pretty closely aligned to Common Core, and using their four-year state system to say, okay, or I think, to say that we're okay. And now Common Core supporters say there's no mandate. See, Virginia got out of it. They, they got a waiver. Now, they didn't get any rights to the top money, and they only got a waiver because they allowed one other option. Um, so, for most of our history, education was local, it was private, or it was at most state-controlled. Now, with Common Core, we're at the apogee of a half a century of federal incursion and right on the precipice of federal control. Now, just real quickly, I'm sure I've gone over my time, but I feel like this is so important. Um, uh, let me just tell you two major arguments that are given for this, debunk them, tell you a little bit about data mining, then I'll be done. There are two arguments when we've even debated the merits of national standards that are given. One, everyone beats us on, who beats us on international exams has national standards, every country, and it just makes no sense to have a modern nation and have 50 state standards. The first argument is ridiculously superficial. If you've seen the test scores and you've looked to see which countries have national standards, uh, most of the ones that do better than we do have national standards, so do most of the ones that do worse than we do. So I could, if I wanted to be dishonest, just come out and say, we don't want Common Core. Almost all the countries that do worse than we do have national standards, so we don't want them. The reality is there just is no correlation. So to argue that we should have them because the ones who, countries that tend to do better than we do have them makes no sense. And the fact of the matter is some countries that have done better than we do or have don't have national standards. Canada doesn't even have a national department of education. Australia doesn't have national standards, at least didn't during most of these tests. Um, so that one's blown apart. If you go into the deeper empirical research where they try and control for lots of factors that lead to uh, academic outcomes, uh, income and things like that, to isolate the effect of having national standards, they find the only way it might have an effect is if national standards are, are tied to tests with high stakes for kids. So you don't pass uh, a grade if you don't do well on the test. However, once you control for the culture of these countries, even that goes out the window. In other words, there is no meaningful empirical evidence that national standards do any good. 
And then the 50 state standards, the idea just doesn't make sense in a modern nation. It's true. You don't want 50 centralized standards. What you need, modern or not modern nation, is an education system where unique individual students, because that's what kids are, they're not identical cogs, can get an education best suited to their unique needs. And that means you need to have a free market. You need to have freedom where educators can specialize in the needs of particular subgroups of kids excuse me, kids, where they compete for people's business, and where that competition leads to innovation, where you work hard to do things better and more efficiently because that is how you get customers. So it's true. It doesn't make sense to have 50 state standards. But national standards goes in the exact opposite direction of where we need to go, completely the wrong direction, saying that apparently every child in America is exactly the same. Uh, finally, a little bit on this data mining issue. Now, people will say that Common Core requires data mining, it, and we get in a lot of trouble for that. Common Core was coerced as part of something called Race to the Top, as I said. That also included mandates for states to include data collection on all students to make it interoperable. There are other federal laws that also talk about expanding data collection on students. And Common Core is part of this overall context, and that's what you need to understand. And here's what they're aiming at. The ultimate goal is you collect as much information as you can on kids, so that you can, at least this is one goal, isolate everything that goes into a child outside of school, and then you can say which schools are doing a good job. You can say, now we know the effect of the school versus the student. Or use that to say, well, here's how we'll change students. We'll change their nutrition, we'll change their bus schedules. We have collection of data about religion and all sorts of things like that. So the data mining isn't in Common Core. Common Core is part of it. That's where you control for the variable of standards and what kids are learning. So it's important to understand that. They've also killed FERPA, which protects uh, your, your child's data from being released to anybody without your permission and things like that. So Common Core is just the leading edge, really, of a 50-year drive toward federal control. And I, think you could, I hope you can see that now in this trajectory. And despite massive evidence of both federal failure, because you can look at huge increase in federal spending, flat test scores for 17-year-olds. Despite this massive evidence of federal failure and the vacuum of support for standardization or nationalization, we continue to move in the wrong direction. Great. Well, thanks, everybody, for coming out today. And thanks to Neil and Cato for having me, and to Congressman Garrett for being here today and taking up this important issue. I think Neil hit the nail on the head. This idea that Common Core will fix 50 years of failed inter federal intervention, I think, is just incredibly misguided. And that's exactly what it is. It is Washington's latest attempt to fix ed policy from a centralized approach. So I want to try to uh, tear the core apart, as Neil said, uh, starting with the math and then the English language arts. And since I'm not a mathematician, uh, relying on the great work that several mathematicians have done to actually examine the standards and see how they fare. Um, that's Zev Worman uh, and uh, uh, Jim Milgram, and then on the English language side, Sandra Stotsky down at the University of Arkansas. So these three experts uh, looked at Common Core at both the mathematics standards and the English language arts. On the math content side, there are quite a few problems. In general, the mathematics standards are poorly worded, they are poorly sequ sequenced, they lack organization, they don't use standard algorithms, and they are not internationally benchmarked. 
And you will hear Common Core proponents say all the time that these are high international standards that are competitive on an international level. It's just not true that they're internationally benchmarked. Overall, Common Core's preparation for Algebra 1 falls a year or two behind the standards in California and behind the standards in high-achieving countries. So there are other states where Common Core math standards are set at a higher level, um, but they're not set at a high international level. And if you look at a state like California, their math standards actually exceed Common Core's. And because of that lack of early preparation for algebra, Common Core pushes off Algebra 1 until ninth grade, whereas for the past few decades, most states had been moving toward having students take Algebra 1 by eighth grade. In a review published by the Pioneer Institute, which is a Boston-based think tank, we see that there are also many weaknesses in Common Core's high school mathematics standards. Compared with the content standards in California and Massachusetts for Algebra 1, Geometry, and Algebra 2, the content of Common Core standards for the three basic courses show low academic expectations for its definition of college readiness. In fact, some have argued that these are actually community college level standards, not college readiness standards. Moreover, Common Core replaces the traditional Euclidean foundations of school geometry with an experimental approach to the study of middle and high school geometry that has not been used widely elsewhere in the world or considered effective when it was tried out. So to go to Jim Milgram, Jim Milgram is a Stanford uh, professor emeritus of mathematics and actually sat on the Common Core Validation Committee. He's actually the only mathematics content matter expert to sit on the Validation Committee. And Milgram says that the approach to geometry and core standards is very unusual, focusing in eighth grade and beyond on using the Euclidean and extended Euclidean groups to define congruence and similarity, as well as develop their key properties. It is also worth noting that a similar approach was taken in Russia about 30 years back, but was quickly rejected. It wasn't that the teachers weren't capable of teaching, though this may very well be a problem for most middle school and many high school math teachers here. The problem was that it was way too non-standard, and basic geometric facts and theorems had to be handled in entirely new, untested, and ultimately unsuccessful ways. That was Jim Milgram. So in addition to these uh, geometry shortcomings, there are also problems with how fractions are handled and serious concerns with basic arithmetic. Milgram again, he says, I was not able to certify, again, he sat on the Common Core Validation Committee, I was not able to certify that the core mathematics standards are benchmarked at the same level of the standards of high achieving countries in mathematics. Common Core's math standards are weaker than the very best state standards, those in California, Massachusetts, Indiana, and Minnesota. And as a result of that analysis that Milgram did, he refused to sign off as a member of the Common Core Validation Committee. So you have no content matter experts that signed off to say that these are actually international high achieving uh, standards in mathematics. Zev Werman, a former senior policy advisor at the US Department of Education and a member of the committee that crafted California's math standards back in 1997, notes that the common core standards require only algebra one and segments of algebra two and geometry despite the fact that most four-year colleges and universities require at least three years of math in high school, a minimum of Algebra I, Algebra II, and Geometry. In December 2009, 
Werman, along with Assistant Secretary of Education for Policy, Bill Evers wrote in an article, in other words, students who graduate from high school having taken only math coursework addressing those standards will be inadmissible to any four-year college around the country. Pretty damning remarks about the mathematics standards. On the English language arts standards, as Neil mentioned, the focus right now is twofold. It's mathematics standards and English language arts. On the English side, Unfortunately, they are equally concerning and have equally uh, problematic shortcomings. Literacy experts point out that Common Core denigrates the value of teaching literature in the classroom. English teachers are being told that 70% of their course material in high school must be derived from informational text. So what exactly meets the definition of informational text? Uh, they have no assigned reading at the moment, but if you look at Common Core's appendices, there are uh, long recommended reading lists. And in those recommended reading lists, and so you can put yourself in the shoes of a teacher, right? Your Department of Ed, your state superintendent says we've adopted Common Core, your principal says here's a recommended reading list, you're going to feel probably rather obliged to follow that recommended reading list. So what do we see? We find the Federal Reserve Bank's Fed views, really exciting stuff, the evolution of the grocery bag, healthcare costs in McAllen, Texas, and Executive Order 13423, strengthening federal environmental energy and transportation management. Really just, you know, you can put yourself in the shoes of a 14-year-old high school boy. It's, it's pretty exciting. So the requirement for English teachers to um, use 70%, it starts off at 30, moves to 50%, and eventually in high school it's a 70% requirement uh, to use informational text has led some people to fear that this really will come at the expense of classic literature and fiction. So let me quote uh, from Professor Stotsky directly from a paper, which I think we handed out, that you all have, that she published for Heritage on the English language arts standards. She writes, a diminished emphasis on literature in the secondary grades makes it unlikely that American students will study a meaningful range of culturally and historically significant literary works before graduation. It also prevents students from requiring a rich understanding and use of the English language. Perhaps the greatest concern, it may lead to a decreased capacity for analytical thinking. She goes on to say that it will be hard to find informational text with similar textual challenges, whether or not literary, nonfiction. A volume published in 2011 by the National Council of Teachers of English on how English teachers might implement Common Core standards helps us to understand why. Among other things, it offers as examples of informational or nonfiction text selections on computer geeks, fast food, teenage marketing, and the working poor. This is hardly the kind of material to exhibit ambiguity, subtlety, and irony. When compared with standards in California and Massachusetts, the Common Core English standards fall woefully short as well. Common Core standards will not prepare more high school students for authentic college-level work than standards these two states have prepared. To the contrary, they may lead to fewer high school students prepared for authentic college-level work. And Stotsky concludes her analysis of the ELA standards by saying that Common Core standards make a coherent K-12 ELA curriculum unattainable. So there are major problems on the mathematics side, major problems with the English language arts standards. And partly, that could be due to the fact that these standards were never field tested, they were never piloted. As Neil mentioned, for many states, they actually had to adopt these standards sight unseen. So Common Core did not require any pilot testing before being adopted, which could be at the root of the cause of some of these problems. But 
If we do find problems, which I believe we will once these are fully implemented, it will be very difficult to fix these mistakes once, once they're set at the national level. Professor Jay Green down at the University of Arkansas talks about this, and in testimony that he gave in 2011 before the House Ed and Workforce Committee warned, once we set national standards, curricula, and assessments, they are nearly impossible to change. If we discover a mistake or wish to try a new or possibly better approach, we can't switch. We are stuck with whatever national choices we make for a long time. And if we make a mistake, we will impose it on the entire country. So there are some serious content concerns, but beyond that, common core national standards do not fundamentally correct the misalignment of power and incentives that we see in American education today. And if anything, I think a national standards regime actually exacerbates the problems. Before assuming national standards will provide parents with useful information about their child's performance, we should consider what types of information parents need about their child's school success. Parents need two critical pieces of information to know whether their child is excelling in school. First, they need to know whether their child is mastering content appropriate to their grade level. And second, they need to know whether their child is on pace with other children across the country. Meaningful information about student achievement already exists. To provide information about content mastery, states currently conduct criterion reference tests, which measure a student's mastery of content as outlined by state standards. To provide information about how rigorous the content is compared to other states across the country, for a parent to know if their third grader is on par with other third graders across the country, many states also use norm reference tests, which measure achievement compared to other students nationally. Moreover, we have the National Assessment of Educational Progress, often referred to as the nation's report card. The NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, acts effectively as an external audit of state standards, providing a common gauge for quality. No Child Left Behind also requires every state to issue report cards creating school systems. So we have a lot of information out there already. What has been missing in some instances is transparency about that data. But inadequate access to information does not justify a national standards and testing regime. Adopting national standards and tests to define what every child in America will learn distracts from fixing those fundamental deficiencies in our education system, a lack of choice for families and the absence of competition to force schools to improve. Worse still, Common Core adoption will centralize standard setting, turning back pages, as Neil explained, on the long-held principle of state and local control based on the idea that those closest to the students are in the best position to identify and meet their education needs. The paramount concern for us with Common Core is that it further entrenches the federal government into what is taught in our nation's schools. We have seen creeping, some people would say galloping, federal intervention into what is taught in our nation's schools over the past four and a half decades. And such intervention is a zero-sum game. Every inch the federal government takes comes at the expense of state and local control of education. And something that is as important as what is taught in local schools throughout the country should not be subjected to centralization or the whims of Washington bureaucrats. What is taught in America's classrooms should be informed by parents, by principals, by teachers, and by the business community, which can provide input about the skills students need to be competitive when they leave high school. One size does not fit all when it comes to standards and assessments. Regional economies, state priorities, the needs of individual school districts 
should dictate the standards and assessments that drive curricula for a given school system, not national organizations or Washington, who are by and large more interested in the ease of uniformity. So let me just try to illustrate this a little bit further. Two competing forces are pushing on America's education system today. One force, we see uh, the Obama administration and many of those on the left. Here's a quote from Education Secretary Arne Duncan. We've had 50 different goalposts, 50 different standards. Having 50 different yardsticks has not helped children and has not helped education. We need a common definition for success. So that was Secretary Duncan. The other force cuts in the exact opposite direction and is led by states and local school districts working to, in to implement innovative school choice models. One of the most innovative models we see in the country today uh, is actually in the state of Arizona, which has just implemented empowerment scholarship accounts, which provide parents 90% of what the state would have spent directly into an education savings account, which they can then use to pay for any education-related service of their choice. Here's how one parent, Kathy, used her empowerment scholarship account to tailor her son's educational experience. So keep Secretary Duncan's quote in mind at the same time. Kathy has hired a teacher to work with her son, Jordan, who has cerebral palsy during the week. Kathy also uses account funds to pay for a PE class for homeschool students on Wednesdays. In addition, Jordan sees a physical therapist twice each week using account funds. Kathy also uses the account to pay for Jordan's therapeutic horseback riding classes. She explained that Jordan used to fall over frequently, even after a small gust of wind. The riding sessions have helped his balance tremendously, Kathy says. I think Kathy's story illustrates that children are anything but common and that there is no one common gauge in education for success, as Secretary Duncan argues. But regardless of all that, regardless of the federal footprints on Common Core, even if you just see Common Core as two national organizations, the National Governors Association and the Council of Chief State Schools Officers uh, pushing these standards, this is an effort to impose a uniform, standardized curriculum across the country. Uniformity has little merit, centralization has little merit. In fact, those ends are the antithesis of what we know works in education, choice and competition. And that goes for standards and tests as well. So what we should be doing is going in the exact opposite direction, pushing for robust and expansive school choice for all families, empowering parents to choose schools that use a curricula that meet their child's unique learning needs. Common Core goes in the exact opposite direction. And I would just leave you with this, that what the federal government funds, it ultimately controls. And that, of course, is the fear with Common Core. Thank you.